the ability, I think, for people to retain a sense of community, a commitment to who we are as people, and to create and make beauty at the other side of truly devastating circumstances does give me hope. Hi, I'm Vicki Robin, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute. We interview cultural scouts uh, to help us see more clearly so we can act more courageously in turbulent times. Uh, today's guest is Julian Brave Noisecat. He chose to talk about three stories he's reporting on now, beautiful stories of resilience, honor, tradition, and irony. While Julian was featuring other stories, I say these are the very qualities I saw in him. Officially, he is Vice President of Policy and Strategy for Data for Progress. Uh, he's the Narrative Change Director for the Natural History Museum. He's a fellow of the Type Media Center, the NDN Collective, and the Center for Human and Nature. He's worked, his work has appeared in the New York Times, the New Yorker, Rolling Stone, and other publications. Julian grew up in Oakland, California, and is a proud member of the Canem Lake Band and descendant of Little Wap Nation of Mount Curry. So enjoy Julian. Well, hi, Julian, and welcome to What Could Possibly Go Right, and it's an honor to talk with you today. So as a journalist and a storyteller, as a data and poly, <laughs> policy analyst for progressive causes, and in some way as an interpreter and advocate for indigenous peoples in North America, and probably a lot more roles and hats and hearts I don't know about. You will have a unique perspective on our core question. In one interview I listened to, you quoted someone saying, indigenous people are post-apocalyptic people. And what we're going through now as a nation feels nigh on to apocalyptic. So in this potent moment when so much is falling apart and it's not clear how our world is gonna reassemble itself, you know, put on your headlamp and shine a light onto the contentious and murky landscape ahead. And tell us what you see. What encouraging green shoots are sprouting? What do you see could possibly go right? Well, firstly, thank you so much, Vicki, for reaching out and asking me this question. Um, just the fact that people are asking this question actually gives me uh, a small measure of hope. Um, so I really, really appreciate that. Um, you know, I was thinking really hard about what my response to this question might be. And as you said, I wear a lot of hats. Uh, so I, as a policy person and wonk and advocate, I get to see how politicians and social movements and organizations all interact and how they put together things that could potentially someday become laws. And I was originally gonna, gonna talk about that, but at the end of the day, I, I, mean, I don't think that that's actually the thing that inspires people. I'm actually not even sure that that's what really inspires me. Like policies on, on, on the page are not the thing that make me get up and get excited in the morning. Although certainly I think that it'd be cool if our, if our country passed some you know, remarkable and, and historic laws to take on climate change and 
deliver social justice and, and all those sorts of things. Obviously that's important, but it's not, it's not what gets me, you know, what makes me feel things. And at the end of the day, I do think that it's important for progress and justice to, to make us feel things. You know, I think that, that, um, that, that the real, when social change uh, and justice and um, compassion are happening, it makes my, the, it makes my, it makes like the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, I think. Um, makes me feel things, it, it, it's beautiful. And so I was thinking about some of the other work that I do, which is as a, as a reporter and as a journalist, and some of the seemingly small, but um, I think remarkable things that post-apocalyptic people, uh, my people, indigenous people, are doing to bring ourselves back from the depths of a genocide, the loss of um, an entire continent, and, and really truly more than that, an entire world, the loss of languages, cultures, the knowledge that those things held, um, the immense amounts of, of death and devastation that uh, isn't like something that just happened, you know, 100 or 200 or 300 years ago, but is, is still something that our people, our families, our loved ones, that we are still dealing with. And so I've, I've thought about three stories. The first is um, just really briefly, actually, how that post-apocalyptic idea first came to me. And it wasn't actually originally my idea. Most of my ideas aren't actually my ideas. They're things that other smart people say or tell me or things that I observe in the reporting that I do. And that was um, a little over two years ago now when I was invited to participate in a literary festival in Paris. And I was there with um, this Blackfoot guy named Cowboy. Uh, so he's an, he's an Indian guy whose parents named him Cowboy. So they had a good, they had a pretty good sense of humor that one did. Um, and we were uh, touring around this castle in the town of Vincennes, which is just outside of Paris. And he told me about, um, well, he had said this thing about indigenous people being a post-apocalyptic people on a panel. And when we were sitting there in front of this hall full of French people, I obviously could hear what he had said first because I understood English. So I like heard it a little bit before and it like really made me go like, wow, that's a, I, I, I knew exactly what he meant when he said it, but I had never heard it articulated exactly that way. Um, and then later we were hanging out and he was talking about how he had just gone to Scotland and uh, visited Castle Calgary. And um, Castle Calgary is, is the castle in Scotland that shares the same name as Calgary, Alberta, which is the major city uh, that is located in what is now, or in what is Blackfoot, territory. And he told me about this idea that he had to um, reclaim or maybe even buy if he could figure out some wealthy person to finance it, uh, Castle Calgary and rename it Mokinsis, which is the, I probably didn't pronounce it exactly right, but it's the, um, the original Blackfoot word for um, the city of Calgary. So he basically, he wanted to do a reverse uh, colonization of this castle in Scotland 
uh, and reclaim it on behalf of, um, you know, his people, the Black Greek people. And I don't know. I mean, I think that just in the, uh, the capacity of, you know, people who have the Blackfeet endured massacres against their people. Um, you know, they resisted, they endured uh, purposeful efforts of starvation by the Canadian government. That was the way in which the Crown actually um, pushed First Nations on the plains to settle with treaties, uh, its claims to its land. And, you know, the fact that someone who descends from that and is living in the long and enduring aftermath of that can still become and grow to become a filmmaker and and have come up with like crazy fun ideas like reclaiming Castle Calgary and renaming it his people's name for the city of Calgary is kind of awesome, you know, like the ability of of humans through art and creativity to do things like that, I think is um, to me suggests that as we approach and enter, I think what are again, apocalyptic circumstances with climate change, with the pandemic, uh, with the rise of um, right-wing tendencies towards fascism and, and racism, uh, you know, the ability, I think, for people to retain a sense of community, a commitment to who we are as people, um, and to create and make beauty at the, at the other side of, of, of truly devastating um, circumstances, I think does give me a bit of hope that um, no matter what we face and what our ancestors have faced, we can, we can pull out of the other sides of these things um, with, with hope and with a sense of who we are and even with fun and crazy and cool dreams. Uh, so I think that was the first story. And then the second story that I, that I was thinking about is a podcast actually that I'm working on right now follows um, a young woman named Cheyenne Brady, uh, who was a former Miss Indian World title holder. So Miss Indian World uh, is the biggest powwow princess in all the world. And so powwows are these um, intertribal celebrations of song and dance uh, and kind of like rodeos. If you've ever been to a rodeo there, each powwow and celebration will often have its own princess and representative who then throughout the rest of the year travels to a whole bunch of other celebrations and powwows representing the celebration that she is the title holder for and then inviting people to come um, to that celebration the next year. And usually if you hold that title, you have to do, um, you have to carry yourself in a particular way. And then you also have to do um, a large giveaway to, um, you know, signal that your, that your family has been honored by this, this thing and that, um, you know, you're now ready to pass on the title to the next title holder. Um, there's this notion in a lot of indigenous cultures that to be truly wealthy is to give what you have away, which I think is a very different relationship to riches and wealth. Um, and so Cheyenne was the biggest powwow princess in the whole world. She was the um, powwow princess for the Gathering of Nations, which is the largest annual powwow that's held, uh, absent a pandemic, held every year in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And there's often dozens of, of young women who uh, 
try out to become Miss Indian World. They get judged on their speaking ability, their dancing ability, um, their knowledge of their traditions and culture and arts and things like that. Uh, an essay, you know, these sorts of things. It's not like it's not like the Miss USA pageant. It's a different kind of thing. And um, at the end of the process, you know, they someone gets crowned Miss Indian World, and Cheyenne won this title. And so she bears still, even though she's no longer the title holder, a lot of responsibility um, in her community. She lives in the Man Mandan Hidatsa Rikara Nation, uh, which is a reservation in, in North Dakota, actually in this, the, the heart of fracking country in North Dakota. And she still is, uh, uh, she's a young woman, now she's a young mother, and she's uh, a community leader and someone who's really looked to in her, in her community to lead and to solve a lot of problems. And, um, one of the big problems and big challenges that's facing Indian country right now is we're doing a census, right? The United States is conducting its, uh, its every decade uh, we conduct a census. And as a rule, since we've been doing the census, native people have been the most undercounted um, group by the census. We uh, more so than any other people are considered the hardest to count of the hard to count. And um, in 2010, there was something like a four to 5% undercount of native people, which really matters more so than even just the numbers. It's, it, the census determines, you know, essentially political representation in the House of Representatives. It determines how the 435 seats in the House of Representatives are apportioned. Uh, and it also determines uh, the allocation of federal spending on all sorts of different programs from schools to hospitals to roads um, all of those things. And of course, Indian country is especially reliant on those things, not only because we are often the poorest of the poor, um, but also because Indian country is considered federal land. And so um, a lot of the federal programs that we rely upon are, are apportioned based upon the census, and we are disproportionately dependent upon those, upon that funding. And so Cheyenne um, was tapped by her tribe's leadership to lead the census efforts on her reservation uh, to do what has essentially been an impossible task for people going back decades, which is to make sure everyone on her reservation is counted. It's a very simple task. It sounds like it's a very simple task, but it's an incredibly uh, difficult thing to do. It's an incredibly important civic exercise. And, you know, on one level, it's about making sure that Native people count, but on a deeper level, it's about making sure native people aren't once again erased. You know, of course our country has erased native people um, since its inception. Uh, and it's also about not just what does it mean to be counted, but what does it mean to count? What does it mean to matter? You know, what does it mean to be visible in that kind of a way? And so um, I've been following Cheyenne as, as she's tried to make sure that everybody in her tribe is counted and everybody in her tribe is seen to matter by the federal government, a government that has throughout its history insisted that native people do not matter and do not count. It's okay if we do not count them. Um, and just watching someone like Cheyenne go about what has been um, an impossible task for so many people with grace and grit and determination um, and uh, never, a, a can't quit, won't quit, attitude um and even like you know as i've asked her and interviewed her for hours and hours now you know if she's mad at any point about 
the situation she's been put into, you know, the fact that the federal government has made this an impossible scenario, that that it's impossible, and then you get a pandemic on top of it. You know, she she never has because at the end of the day, um, I think that there is a a calmness and beauty in the leadership that um, is emerging out of Native communities and, and honestly is, is, is being driven and led by Native women in um, seeing the imperative and need to rise to the occasion that at the end of the day, um, coming back from the brink of, of, of genocide and, and annihilation uh, requires leadership and often requires care and attention and that you know, very often it's it's Native women who are doing those things. So that, her story um, also inspired me and gave me hope. And then the last story that, that I've been writing and reporting that's almost um, published yet, but I haven't quite published it when we were taping this, uh, is the story of two uh, Navajo medicine people on the Navajo reservation uh, they live in a town called Sanders, which is in um, the southern and western portion of, of the Navajo Nation. Uh, it's an area where many Navajo were relocated, actually, after what's called the Navajo Hopi Land Settlement Act of 1974. This was a, a very recent um, relocation of as many as 15,000 Navajo families um, from their ancestral homelands that was carried out uh, nominally because of a dispute over the boundaries between the Navajo and Hopi reservations, but really truthfully um, because there was interest from uh, coal corporation, Peabody Coal actually, in getting at the coal underneath those lands. Um, and so they're descended, actually they're not descended, they are some of the people who were displaced from um, the parts of the Navajo nation that uh, were then absorbed by the Hopi reservation and then opened up to Peabody Coal. And amidst the pandemic, um, the Sosis is their name, David and Beth Sosi, their grandparents, have been living in one of the most impacted places in the world by the coronavirus. The Navajo Nation has a density, population density about equal to Siberia, but had a per capita coronavirus cases higher actually than Wuhan, China, than the Hebei province in China, um, when, when cases there peaked earlier in, in the summer. And so they're living amidst one of the most impacted communities, not just in the United States, but actually in the world by this pandemic. And amidst all of this, you know, as many of their family members are falling ill, um, many of their friends are, are catching the virus and then not getting adequate treatment because Indian Health Service, the federal agency that provides health care for Native people, is funded um, about a third of what Medicare and Medicaid are funded. Uh, so it's a deeply underfunded agency. When the, uh, when the pandemic started, the Navajo Nation had all of a, a few dozen uh, ventilators and other um, you know, forms of essential protective equipment. Amidst all this, they start tending their traditional garden, 
their their corn, their squash, um, things that actually were handed down to them from their parents and the parents before them, all the way back to the um, Navajo longest walk, where the Navajo people were sent on a long walk um, out of their homelands to Bosque Redondo. This is corn that they're planting that's descended from corn that was hidden by their ancestors so that it wouldn't get burned down by Kit Carson in the United States military. So that's the corn that they're planting and they're doing this, they're carrying forward this tradition that stretches back all the way to the Navajo creation story. And at the same time as they're doing that, they're transitioning their their healing practice essentially as medicine people to a, um, a socially responsible work from home telehealth model. So they're figuring out how in the middle of a pandemic are we gonna hold these prayer ceremonies for a community that we have always had that is at this time in need of us more now more than ever, uh, you know, in need of prayers, in need of that connection and community that you get out of, out of faith. Um, how are we gonna do this in a way that is responsible um, and socially distanced during, during the pandemic? And, um, you know, ultimately the Navajo Nation actually handled the coronavirus very responsibly uh, in September, the, the Navajo Nation actually uh, reached the point where there were days when uh, there were no new cases of coronavirus reported on the reservation. So the tribe with uh, very limited infrastructure, you know, 30% of homes don't even have electricity, 10% don't even have running water, um, you know, one of the least resourced places in the United States actually did the job correctly. And amidst all this, you know, Navajo people like Bess and David Sosi, um, they found ways to carry forward their tradition, the things that were that had been handed down to them, and to pass them on to their kids, and to and to translate them into, you know, socially responsible and healthy models. And I think between all of those stories, the creativity that that cowboy showed. Um, the determination and grit and leadership that Cheyenne has showed and the continuity and commitment to carry forward tradition, but also to bring tradition into not just the 21st century, but also into an era of social distancing that David and Bess showed. You know, I think that there is, there are small but remarkable and beautiful things that people who are living in some of the hardest circumstances in this country some of the hardest circumstances that humans have, have faced, um, who are figuring out how to live in a way that is compassionate, that is beautiful, um, that is creative, and that brings not just meaning and, and joy to themselves, but to other people around them. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, of course, we need to do laws, we need to do policies, but the things that we can do as people to um, live in that sort of uh, dignified, beautiful, humble, um, creative, compassionate way to, to make in our small interactions and in the people and family and communities we have around us um, to, make, to make good things happen. You know, I'm, I'm always um, amazed at the things that I see in Indian country. And I think that makes me just a little bit hopeful. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, because that was so well done because you did your own summation. Um, and what I'm noticing, the adjectives that I'm noticing, the stories, they have 
I think the word is honor. It's like honoring the past, honoring tradition, um, being put into a role of leadership, you know, like the world princes and understanding that that is a responsibility to her family, to the community. Um, it's, it's almost like a different relationship than normally right now, you know, people are frantic and they're upset and they're, you know, and, and our, the, the media is reflecting back to us, um, reflecting back to us, upsetting things, you know, so upset, you know, we're sort of in upset and we, when you're upset, you can forget, you can forget the strength that you were given whether it's by your parents or a teacher or a religion, you can forget these things. And so I think there is going to be, you know, as we go forward, there's going to be a perseverance. Perseverance is going to be like, we're going to have to, and yet she persisted. We're going to have to persevere. Um, and um, to know stories of a people, and I, I did my research and I know that you are, you know, from indigenous and Jewish lineages, both of which are peoples who have persevered, you know, who've carried forward, you know, who've used the strength of community of family and tradition and understood that you're carrying something really valuable, you know, and honoring what you're carrying, not diminishing it, saying a lot, you know, that was the old ways. And now there's like this new cool thing called video games, you know, there's, so I, that's, I feel inspired by that. And that there are people among us who know how to persevere and they know what qualities of spirit, you know, whether it's having a great sense of humor, you know, an irony and, you know, never giving up your mojo, you know, to the difficulties that are being thrust upon you. So I just find this, thank you so much for going to the heart of the matter, because I think it's, it, you're not telling stories of sort of like the old rah-rah, if everybody does a little, we can do a lot. These are not like, you know, every little blade of grass, every starfish. These are stories of dignity. And I think that um, we need these stories and we can carry them in our hearts, not just our minds. You know, policies will carry in our minds and the policies need to embody those. They need to be like baskets that hold this, the spirit and the people going forward. So anyway, I just want to, that was like my little um, summation of your summation. And I really appreciate your stories. And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, no, I mean, at the end of the day, I just feel really honored and fortunate that people um, in my writing and journalism work feel comfortable sharing with me, their their stories, and trusting me to to tell them and treat them fairly and and with kindness and and dignity, and to tell them well too. I think that's that's important. So, yes, you. and to find the stories that, in their specificity and in their heart, somehow tell the larger story, not imposing an intellectual frame on a on real people who are doing real things but honoring the re reality of it. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review, which will help this hopeful message get out to more people. 
and check out the Post Carbon Institute website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks to all our donors for their support. Thanks also to Cher Miller, Amy Boringrud, and Clara Winter at Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com. 